Hello again, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Scope of Practice, a podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board designed to address thought-provoking issues and spur conversation on the topics discussed. The CCB is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery industry. And we thank you for joining us. If you have listened to the program or have followed me at all on social media, you know that I have a special interest in the credibility issues that we have an industry have. And I believe that we have not only the ability, but the responsibility to improve the integrity of the field. It is energizing to encounter others with similar perspectives with their own individual view. My long lost cousin, Mark Twain, yes, it's true. He is one of my ancestors. He once opined, if I can capture truth in its simplest forms, Beauty will follow like a sledgehammer. Well, recently I came upon someone writing the simple truth, and after reading it, the giant sledgehammer of beauty, not unlike the wily coyote schemes to get the roadrunner backfiring on him, hit me hard and fast. It was just a couple of weeks ago while perusing posts on LinkedIn that I was so immediately connected to the words of a person that I did not know and I'd never met. The writer had the nerve to address the proverbial elephant in the room, to point out that the emperor was naked, or you can insert any allegory you like. She spoke of some of the issues that the behavioral health workforce faces that are of our own doing. We can point fingers, blame, rationalize behaviors, whatever it takes to push these issues off to others, but they are ours. The strength of the reality is that it lies within each of us to address and change them for the good of all of us. I am absolutely had to reach out to her and invite her to join the program. Paia Vu is a mental health therapist and the owner of Your Own Pathway Therapy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She works with women to empower them to forge their own path by letting go of society's expectations and living their best authentic self, even if that means challenging the status quo to find their own happiness. This work excites her even today. Welcome to the show, Paia. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was a great introduction. <laughs> I'm very excited <laughs> about this conversation as we talked about a little yeah. bit offline. Is these are difficult things to talk about, but they don't have to be. You cannot fix a problem if we don't recognize there is a problem. And the things that you pointed out in the post, absolutely problematic. So just to, as we start, can you for our listeners kind of talk about the general content of that post, uh, what the impetus was, why you were repelled to write it? Yeah, thank you. So I have been a social worker since 2008. And I was in school about 20 years ago. So it's been a long time. And I feel like a lot of things have not changed. And I became a mental health therapist about three years ago. And I decided that I wanted to get out of insurance and own my own practice. And when I first started this journey, there was so much shame that I got from other therapists. And it made me in turn feel really bad about myself, saying therapists were shaming me about my, if I wanted to take insurance or not. And I thought about, I agonized it. And when I made the decision to be private pay, I told my clients and they all were happy for me. All of them were so happy for me. And they just said, you do what is best for you. and I had a few that said to me, honestly, I think you're charging a little too low. You can go higher. I was just mind blowing that a client would say that to me while my therapist colleagues were shaming me for even thinking of taking private pay because 
they would say that I would limit a lot of the demographics that really needed therapy, which is which may be true, but I've worked with all different types of demographics in my social work life. And I have worked with people who were so marginalized that they couldn't do therapy or survival was all that they were thinking about. And I have worked with people who have the resources and I found that the people with resources were able to implement the changes that we talked about in therapy. And quite honestly, I was less, I was less burnt out too. So I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do what works for me. And a lot of people decided to put their beliefs on me while I was asking for permission from others. I really needed to ask permission for myself. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, my clients gave me that permission versus versus my colleagues. Yeah. So that's why I thought about all the limiting beliefs, everything that came at us. And I was just like, wow, we as therapists have so much stuff that we needed to work on. And some of those things were the things that I wanted to really point point and pinpoint on, but <laughs> there was a lot more that I wanted to do. But I'm like, okay, let's keep this short because LinkedIn only has so many <laughs> characters that I can do. So I really had to actually, I really actually had to cut it down. So some of those were the points that I feel that were were really pinpoints that I heard other therapists and, and what I kept reading and other social work posts in Facebook. And it was just the same thing over and over. And I said, we need to talk about this. So that's why I made that post. And I'm hearing what you're saying, and it makes a lot of sense to me. When I worked clinically, most of the folks that I worked with were from those marginalized communities. I really liked working with individuals that were considered offenders, that were active in their substance use. I did crisis work, and I really liked working with individuals that had personality disorders. And as much as everybody found that so difficult, I didn't find it that difficult because it's about your mindset going in. And I always think about how those folks are treated when I worry about the credibility of our field. Because I see a lot of posting about people posting from a perspective of having privilege and that the clients that they're treating come from a level of privilege. And we're we're forgetting kind of the everyday person on the street who doesn't have those kind of resources to solve things that way. So I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. Whenever I address the the credibility of the industry or I challenge the status quo, which is something I really like to do, there's generally a small portion of professionals who reject the ideas presented um, and may cast dispersions on my intent. Has that happened to you in this case? All the time. (laughs) I mean, kind of, okay. (laughs) So I'll let you you go in deeper than that before I answer, if that's okay. One of the things that, like, I will talk about meeting the client where they're at, saying we do a terrible job of that. It's just lip service. It's really a punchline. And everybody will say, put out their individual experience. I shouldn't say everybody. A number of people put out their individual experience on how they will work to meet the client where they're at. Many times I can find something in there that is saying, well, are you? And, and ask a question about it. But it's not based on individual anecdotal stuff. It's when you look at how the field operates and what we buy into oftentimes when we work for an agency, the client has to do this, this, and this in order to get this, this, and this, instead of saying, what is it that you need? And nowadays, the big push, right, is trauma-informed care. And in many cases, we've turned that into Rather than meeting a client where they're at and addressing what they want to work on, we're mining for pathology, which is the exact opposite of trauma-informed care because it may re-traumatize somebody. 
instead of saying, oh, this is the issue you have in front of us, let's work on that. And But we want to do something else. So are we truly meeting the client where they're at? When I bring it up, I get a lot of grief. People that know me know that. <laughs> <laughs> so for this, yeah. we pointed out some yeah. things. Is that your experience as well? Yes. I worked with insurance and the first thing they want us to do is give them a diagnosis on the initial meeting. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. There's lots to go on. And at the beginning of my career as a therapist, honestly, the first session, I wanted to be present, but all I was thinking of, okay, what kind of diagnosis can I give away? Because listen to the symptoms, ask these kind of questions, ask this, well, how are they sleeping? What are they doing? What are they doing this? How, how? And I wasn't really present because I was thinking, okay, the paperwork I have to do, what diagnosis can I give? Okay, how are we going to do the care plan? And it's a lot of force upon us as therapists and how we practice. And yeah, we don't get to actually be with the clients because we are so busy formulating, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, what's the care plan? Okay, okay, the diagnosis. Okay, okay, so this is what I think you have, blah, 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 blah. I know they say you can always change it, but you need that diagnosis, like the initial assessment. It's like give us the diagnosis so that we can build insurances. And yeah, it, it's more force. You don't get to build a relationship. And that's why I decided that I wanted to get away from that, where sometimes honestly, we just talk about things that the client wants to talk about. And having no agenda is wonderful, where I feel that in agencies, we have to have an agenda. And I read a lot of posts from therapists. I've been meeting with this person for five sessions. We don't have anything to talk about. We just sit there. What's going on in your sessions that you don't have anything to talk about? It doesn't always have to be about therapy. And Earlier on in my career, that's what I was always focused on. Okay, how do I solve this? What are your symptoms? Sometimes it's just letting the client talk about their story and share that journey with you so that you're like, ah, so you're going through a lot of grief and loss about this situation. And that's why you haven't been doing it. And a lot of times it's building that relationship and rapport where they're like, okay, I'm going to do this again. It's like, oh, wow, all those times that we've been talking, which I thought was nothing, was actually something to give you the confidence to believe in yourself again. So mm-hmm. I like I like it when there's no agenda. And a lot of times agenda is forced upon us. Exactly. I think we work from sometimes from a paperwork driven perspective, a documentation driven perspective, rather than a relationship driven perspective. And all yes. the research supports and shows that of the things that we as, as therapists and as counselors can control or have a big part in, the therapeutic relationship accounts for twice as much uh, of the change as our credentials or what technique we use. It's just being able to have that relationship with somebody. And people can find their own answers when we reflect back to them what they're telling us. Exactly. You know, my best sessions are (laughs) when clients are talking to themselves and I just nod and they're like, oh my God, I have the answer. I'm like, yeah, you do. And you figured all of this out on your own by talking to yourself out loud and processing and like, okay, I know what I have to do now. Thank you for that. I'm like, you're welcome. You actually did all that on your own. (laughs) Just to clarify for our audience, what exactly was your intention with this post that kind of took some things to task when you hit the post now button? What was running through your head? 
I was like, oh shit, what am I going to get? <laughs> but I'm like, but you know what? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. And I know that a lot of people agree with me and they don't have, they may not be in the right place to say it. And I feel like I am in the right place to say it where I have my business, I don't have anything that holds me back. And my whole intention is to be the voice that other people can't say it and feel it. And honestly, I have a lot of colleagues who are working for big big businesses and they keep telling me, well, you're doing the right thing. What you're doing is the right thing. We're so exhausted. We're so tired seeing nine, 10 clients a day. You're so lucky that you get to do this and I said yeah I I'm very blessed that I get to say and to be where I am and because I'm in this position I'm going to say what I feel it is is there's a lot of injustice in our field that keeps happening because I tend to have people that think like yourself on the show when I look at some people and some big names who put out some very controversial although yet not inaccurate perspectives i look at someone like i'd love to get carl hart carl hart and i did we're at the same conference we had dinner we had a nice little chat but i'd like to get him to talk when he talks about harm reduction and the reality of drug use and you know dr bob lynn in in washington state will take things to task that he often does that on linkedin maya salovitz who challenges the the disease concept of addiction dr robert weiss in la is somebody that was on who challenges codependency of the idea of codependency and, and Ron Barton, he's a TEDx speaker who talks about race. And even in your backyard in but in St. Paul, Dr. Mark Willenbring, who challenges the system itself. Um, so these are the folks that when they get when people get a chance to hear them, may change some minds, may not, but at least it starts discussion. And I think your post was an absolute perfect discussion starter for people. So there were some really important things that jumped off the screen for me in your post. Do you mind if we address a few of these individually? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So the first one for me is so incredibly common for so many of us in our careers that have heard it. And some of us, including myself at times, may have said it on occasion. We demand more respect from others for our efforts and our work. that We don't often give our work the respect that it demands. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's huge. We as a field have so much knowledge and so much skills, and we know that we do, and yet we won't showcase this. We feel that all we can do is work one-on-one, an hour with clients, you know, 20, 30 of them a week. And what we have, we can share in the macro versus just the micro. We can do our work in meso and macro settings also. And we have so much knowledge. And yet, I made a post about this earlier too. We're like the wallflowers. We're like the wallflowers. Like we know we're good, but for some reason, we're so shy and reserved. And we're like the wallflowers who won't... (laughs) who Mm -hmm. won't go out in the dance floor and be the debutante because we're so afraid being criticized or the pushback. And then you see other professions like the MBAs, the Juris Doctors, who are taking, not taking, but who are being the coaches, 
They're the ones talking about mental health. They're the ones that are being um, as a specialty in big corporations to talk about mental health. And it's like, what about us as mental health practitioners who are actually doing this type of work where we know the emotions, we know the work, and yet we're too afraid to say, hey, what about us? We know this stuff. Like, we know the emotions. We know what clients are going through. And yet we're not owning up to our knowledge and skills. And so other professions who, who know how to promote themselves get the jobs or the recognition that sh- that that could be ours. And so that's what I meant when I wrote that, um, that sentence right there. I, I think we do shoot ourselves in the foot, not necessarily purposely, but we do it often. On the addiction yeah. side... When we talk about individuals with substance use disorders, I, I recognize from being in, having a foot in the mental health field for many years that, that substance use disorder folks are, are really the redheaded stepchild of, of the behavioral health industry. And we do it to ourselves. We demand respect, but we don't give them what we do respect. We want to be paid like professionals, but we act like paraprofessionals. We don't come from a science back routine. We go by stories and things and so from your perspective on the mental health side do you see mental health therapists doing that kind of same kind of behavior yeah how would you how do you recognize that what do you see i think all of this starts with schooling Mm -hmm. where we've been taught not to expect more we've been taught not to do this, do that, not to expect anything you just do the work it's not about you it's about the clients which i agree And so we go in already having limiting beliefs about ourselves, our profession. And when we are taught that, we're not going to expect anything better for us. It's very, we talk about trauma. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of that things like how you don't don't expect more. Just accept the bare minimum. So that comes into my next question, too, about these limiting beliefs, because I think that that's valid and it's interesting. And maybe not something that people listen to the show would have a good idea of of kind of what we're talking about. So can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, limiting beliefs is just basically don't expect more. This is all you're going to get and be happy that you get it. Don't don't ask for more, because if you ask for more, that's bad. That's selfish. And our field is very much about giving and not taking. And when you want to be, I wouldn't even say be a taker, but when you want to have quality, it's very shaming that how dare you want to have quality when the people you work with, your clients don't have the quality, you don't get to have quality either. And so it puts us in this box and it really, (laughs) it really kills us. You know, I, I talked to this about with other people and I don't, go to church. And yet when I work with clients who have a lot of religious trauma, the teachings, it's like very shaming tactics to, to have you keep in mind. And if you want to be out of line, there's like, how dare you want more? So just accept this and this is all you're going to get. And you're lucky that you get this. And so limiting beliefs is like not wanting more for yourself. Don't Don't you dare ask more for yourself. This is all you can do and be grateful for that. Would you say that these limiting beliefs that we have are followed by limiting behaviors? We demand more, but sometimes think it's we're deserved it. We may deserve it rather than saying, I deserve more. 
and I'm going to work for it. Yeah. Is there a, a disconnect there sometimes? I think so. And the system is set up where it's like, don't you dare accept for more. And when you go outside of the system saying, I'm not going to play the system, I'm going to do something else that works best for me. It's like, oh, so you think you're better. <laughs> you think you're better because you want better for yourself and the rest of us are over here and you can't get better. You you don't, don't you dare be better, want better for yourself. And then some of us are like, yeah, yeah, we can. And so we start talking about how wanting better. And so we're letting go of those limiting beliefs. It plays right into, again, something else I'm thinking is that wanting better means doing better. So in order for us to be successful in our roles, it's important that we own our craft, that we take ownership of what we do, and that you posit that we don't often do that as professionals. We'll let others make those decisions. Um you know, whether it be an agency or an insurance company or something, you point out that we can better own our skills and abilities. Is yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, we have so many transferable skills mm -hmm. and we limit those skills into thinking that we can only work one-on-one -on -one with clients. And we have a lot to give. We have a lot to give. And once we acknowledge that, damn, I have a lot to give. I can use my skills in blogging or I can use my skills in consulting. I can use my skills in doing a podcast or writing a book or something. It's like, wow, we're really good at this. We know emotions. We know how to put these emotions to words that really get to people. And we have to own that we are good at this. We have to acknowledge it. If we don't own acknowledge this, how are we supposed to be real and how are we supposed to get the respect from other people and professions? And that's why we're not getting the respect is because we won't speak out and we won't own our craft. And, and when I, we do, people will start saying, okay, you guys do know what you guys are talking about. There are things that I see in the field that provide some sort of cognitive dissonance for me. And that is we talk, one of them is we talk so much about self-care and how important it is, but we as professionals don't really practice good self-care for the simple purpose that we look for it as a product. If you get a massage, that's self-care. If you go on a cruise, that's self-care. But the mindfulness and the self-awareness, that doesn't come from massage. Now, all those things can be part of your self-care, but it has to come from within. And I think it's mm -hmm. odd that we have to be reminded of that when we should be the experts on that. You're so right about that. We think about tangible self-care. Mm -hmm. We think about, oh, go on vacation. I'm all for vacation. I believe people need a vacation. Massages are great. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. That's great. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. That's great. Getting a facial is great. And After shoveling yesterday a foot of snow, <laughs> I was thinking about a massage. <laughs> And that's wonderful. And what I don't, I, I think people are, we're looking at a very consumerism type of self-care. When we talk about self-care for us, I'm talking about the intangible things. And that means like coming from within. I mean, because I don't have to see eight clients a day, I get to do this with you. To me, that's a win. I get to go walk. I get to go do mindfulness. I get to do things that a lot of people take for granted that is very much self-care for me. 
where I don't have to rush in the morning and be like, okay, okay, I got to get here, get here. I don't have to do that. And to me, that's self-care. That's abundant wins where I don't have to rush my life anymore, where I get to have a slow life. And people are thinking more about the, again, the consumerism, the tangible things that make people great. Great. Yeah, that's great too. And yeah, I'm talking more about the within stuff. That is a true self-care. And when you truly take care of yourself within, getting massages and all of that is great, but you're going to realize that you don't need all of that stuff. That's great, but because you take care of yourself within, you don't need all the outside tangible stuff as much as you used to. As you say that, I'm thinking of individuals who kind of showed great self-care, and one that comes into mind was Nelson Mandela. He was incarcerated and beaten for 30-plus years but came out and remained such a person of character because he had good mindfulness. He was able to manage his surroundings mentally and emotionally. He had tremendous emotional intelligence. So we can practice self-care 24-7. And I do a training about emotional intelligence for clinicians. Yeah. And I say, that's how you practice self-care. Saying, I need to cancel my group for self-care is not. You're putting it's a burden on clients when you're doing that and you're co-workers you can do these things uh mm-hmm. without them so i just thought that that's a great way to, to, to kind of explain it so when we look at how we manage and owning our own craft do you think attitude comes to play in that as being a part of it attitude hmm i think you have to believe in yourself and when you talked about mindset and everything I had to really work on my mindset and believe in myself and believe in my craft believe in what i do because if i didn't I don't think I would have been able to say what I said. And yeah, it's all about attitude. It's all about believing yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm always right. It means that this is up for conversation. And I gladly take other people's feedback. Mm. And this is my opinion. And other people will have their opinion. And when I posted that, I knew that I was going to have some pushback too. And yet... (laughs) I was surprised by how much people actually agreed with what I said. I actually thought that I was going to get a lot of pushback from people saying what you are indicating is someone who comes from privilege. You know, we're, mm-hmm. the word privilege comes up a lot because Absolutely. a lot of people use privilege as a way to almost shame and say, how dare you have privilege because you have privilege, you get to do, say these things. And it's like, okay, yes, I am in a position where Perhaps I am privileged, and yet I had to work through all the things to get me to where I am privileged right now. And I think the idea of privilege isn't bad. It's an awareness of it is all it takes. And what I like about that post where you were offering some criticism, some things that we needed to do, really showed that although we think it's our feelings only, there are others who share that with us. And that's great to find out. It becomes problematic when we expect everyone to think the way that we do. And we're not open yeah. to feedback. You're yeah. either right or you learn. Mm-hmm. We don't learn when we're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely learning. And sometimes I'm surprised and sometimes I'm not surprised. And I was surprised. And yet at the same time, I wasn't surprised about the feedback and how much people were like, yes. Yes, we need to talk about this, and and not everybody gets an opportunity to talk about this because of whatever it is, whatever situation that they're in, they may not be able to voice their opinions. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I'm 
I'm going to say stuff because I know not everybody gets to say it, but I'm going to say it because to me, I didn't feel like there were any repercussions for me to say it and to post it. Yeah, you have to be fearless to some degree. The final issue that, from the writing that I like to discuss is a special interest to me, given my role in the ethics of professionals in the substance use world. I'm an investigator. I do consulting on ethics. I train around the country on ethical practice. And I can assure you that ethical practice is misunderstood significantly. You spoke of the fear mongering that can occur when you do what you mentioned earlier, when we offer those macro level interventions outside this the safety of that therapeutic relationship or outside the safety of the organization. Let's spend a little time on this. So you had mentioned posting on LinkedIn is one thing. Doing a podcast like this is another thing. But standing up for an issue that affects your community is not stepping outside. It's not unethical. It's not related to your job. We don't lose the role we have professionally. But there are ways we can expand upon that in the community, in our community. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I was trained as a social worker and they drilled ethics to us. Like they drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled to the point where I don't want to say it was fear mongering, but it's like they taught us so much in that we, everything we did was like, oh my God, was that, did I just break ethics? I was contemplating about the first time when I thought I broke ethics when I was early in my career. And a client wanted a hug for me. And I hugged them. And for the next day, I was like, what did I do? What did I do? I let someone hug me. When I, we were taught, we were taught not to let anybody hug us. And then another early thing that happened to me where I contemplated if I should tell my boss was when I was doing home visits and a little elderly lady gave me a gift, a sewing thing that she made. And I was like, oh, no, I can't take it. And she's like, just take it. I took it. And I'm like, oh, my God. And they're going to find out what's going to happen to me. I'm like, is the ethics going to come after me? Do I? It's just now looking back, it was so silly. It was just so silly. And a lot of social workers who are of color, we're all looking at decolonizing what we were told. If you work in certain communities, you know them. They know you, you know them, you know their story, they know your story, and they're going to come up and talk to you. They're going to do things that are really out of the norm, and you have to decide, okay, is that ethics? Is that, did I cross a boundary? Whatever. Each situation is so unique, and we've talked a lot about this. As therapists, people come and tell us the deepest struggles, and if Somebody, you know, some of the things that I ask, do I attend a wedding? Do I attend their funeral? Do I attend my client's funeral? What what are the ethics in that? And it's a relationship that they built with us and we built with them. And I don't think we talk about our feelings because we try not to have the counter-transference. You know, that's something ethics too. When you have counter-transference, definitely see consultation, which, you know, which all of us should. But Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot of feelings as therapists. It's not all straight, cut and dry as what we were taught in school. What academia versus what real life is, is very different. I remember as an intern for social work school, a, doing intakes at a mental health clinic. And one of the more senior clinicians who was an older gentleman, probably in his late 50s. I say that now being in my late 50s. Um, <laughs> 
and who was talking about doing an intake on this young woman and said, here's really kind of what she's looking for. And I can't do it because I really feel an attraction to this young woman. And I had been beaten into me wrong, 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 that he did the wrong thing, that he actually is a human emotion. And I told my internship supervisor and he goes, what are you crazy? That guy did the right thing for himself and for that client and for all of us. There's nothing unethical about having a countertransferential response. Yeah. There is something about not mentioning it and not working with it. And then the idea that countertransference is always bad. If you have a favorite client, you're experiencing countertransference. If you have a least favorite client, you're experiencing countertransference. And that's if we just talked about it. Yes. We could solve so many problems for everybody. Yes. 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 Uh, It's amazing what talking can do, right? (laughs) If you can, countertransference is a tremendous therapeutic tool, but is so misunderstood, kind of because that fear mongering, we're not learning necessarily how to manage it, how to understand it, being emotionally aware and, and being mindful of our own stuff. Yeah, I think there's a lot of shame in that too, saying, oh, how dare you? How dare you say that? And so when you have that shame, you don't want to talk about it. And there are limits on what we can do. You know, don't write an article a letter to the editor without telling your employer mm-hmm. for your own safety in terms of your employment. Don't identify yourself as an employee of ABC, but you're allowed to have these opinions. Go to a protest, get involved in things, right? Sell Girl yeah. Scout cookies if your daughter's in Girl Scouts. There's nothing wrong. You know, oh, we're taking advantage of people. We're playing. No, you're selling Girl Scouts. I mean, be involved in your church. Be yeah. involved if that's your way. Get in these communities and and speak out against stigma and discrimination. I think that sometimes it's difficult for people to do that because they feel boxed in and haven't explored the opportunities available to them. That might be a supervisory conversation. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Girl Scout cookies because some of the ethics is, do I buy Girl Scout cookies for my client or Mm -hmm. not? And it's like, oh, wow, is that... In ethics to buy Girl Scout cookies, and it's just I, I laugh because all the stuff that we bring up is like, wow, what is going on that we have to think about these things? And then you got some people that said, just buy the damn cookies, just buy the damn cookies. And some people will say, you can't buy it, refer out, don't buy somebody else's cookies. And I honestly. I'll just buy the cookies. I'll, if, I'll buy the cookies. If there's an agency policy, again, that's one thing you have to follow. But from an yeah. ethics point of view, that's not as cut and dry. Yes. It's a different situation. And if you walk out of any grocery store or hardware store, you're going to get accosted by the Girl Scouts and the Girl Scout mothers <laughs> in the lobby. I know they get me every and it's that time of year. And I always right. say I'm not going to. Right. I'm not right. going to, but here I am Venmoing money to the Girl Scouts. <laughs> right. My cookies. It's cookies. Uh, yeah. So many other salient points and, and difficult truths lie within that single post. Is there anything that I missed that's worth mentioning? I just hope that that post is meant to change. To change. And, you know, we're so good at talking to clients about being change makers, advocating for ourselves, doing this. And yet, when it comes to ourselves, why can't we do our own walk and talk? 
And it's like, we're also good about clients, do this, need an advocate for yourself, be assertive. If you want to be the change, be the change. And yet when it comes to ourselves, we're like so scared of change. And my whole idea of that post is to invite conversation and say, if you want to be the change, we got to be the change. Nobody's going to change for us. We got to be the change makers. If we're waiting for insurance and other people to say, hey, you know, maybe we've been paying you really crappy. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. And the only way to make change is to start talking about it, to call out for what it is and have oh, yeah. conversations about it. That's the only way that we can make change. And when you say things that are unpopular, people will push back. And then some people are going to be like, wow, thank you for saying that. On my LinkedIn page, I have, after my picture, the background says, it's a quote from Woodrow Wilson, who was president back during World War I, says, if you want to make enemies, try to change something. And that is incredibly an accurate statement. If you try to change something, we're going to have enemies. But it's a risk we take to have a conversation on something. When I put things out on the podcast, we're not asking people's minds to be changed. We're asking people to and make your own opinion about what was said. And if you think I'm full of it or what we're the guests are talking about are full of it, that's fine. That's fine. But give it a second thought. At least know why you think we're full of it, right? Mm-hmm. People that haven't seen that post, I will cut and paste it and put it on my page on LinkedIn so that people can see that, with your permission, of course. Of course, um, yeah. On the organizational page for Facebook. So I'll make sure that people can see that. And is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience before we go? Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. And uh, I'm all about making changes. I think I was put on. <laughs> My mother always said that I was a troublemaker, and perhaps I am. <laughs> to be a change maker, you got to be a troublemaker. Nice girls don't make changes. Yeah. It's the quote-unquote bad girls that make changes, and it's because we're speaking out. Well-behaved women rarely make history. Right, right. So and so, <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, I and, think that's what that is. <laughs> and it's not that I'm, I don't think I'm like misbehaving, but I'm talking out. And again, therapists, we got to own it. We just got to own it. If we don't own it, we can't get mad. We can't get mad that people are becoming coaches. People are writing books about trauma-informed therapy. We can't be mad that people are inspirational speakers and talk about mental health advocacy when we won't step up to the plate. So we can't be mad if we won't step up to the plate. And we have to step up to the plate if we want changes, if we want to be paid. I said it. We want to be paid to be recognized for our work, our craft, change the world, we know our craft, then we have to step up and say, hey, I'm good at this, I own it, and I can work with you. But we have to stop in the wallflower and go out there. That's a great way to end. Thank you for that. And that's going to do it for this episode of Scope and Practice. And I offer thanks to those of you who listen. We really appreciate that you share some time with us, whether it's in the car, in your headphones. If there is an issue or emerging research or practices that you'd like to have discussed, please let me know directly at my email, jakewami at ctcertboard.org. And a very special thank to Paia Vu for joining us today and really for taking time out of your day to be part of this podcast. 
thank you for being courageous and sharing your forthrightness and tremendous love of what we do. I think it comes from a place of love to push for positive change. Until next time, everybody. 